Throughout 2022, we did do some expository preaching, but I believe the main diet of preaching needs to be expository preaching. Now, I did do some series on some different topics and different textual messages and whatnot, and I think those are appropriate. I know those are appropriate because there needs to be a balance. But I really believe the bulk of preaching in a church needs to be expository for several reasons. Number one, there's benefits for both the congregation and for the pastor. Some of the benefits for you and me is it will eliminate hobby horse preaching in that is it forces you to go through the entire passage. And so let's say, like today, we're going to start in 1 Peter, so you can start uh, turning there if you'd like. But let's say today I preach verses 1 and 2, and then I skip down to verse 10 next week. Well, you all can say, hey, wait a minute, why did he skip those verses? Well, they were difficult, so I thought I'd skip them, right? No, that's not going to be able to happen, because you're going to be like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we were preaching through the whole book verse by verse. But that also helps then and forces me to study all these verses to be able to, be, uh, to preach them. It also gives a pattern of how we should study the Word of God, right? Because why do we believe that the Word of God should be studied as a little piece here, a little piece here, a little piece here, and it becomes so disjointed? I'm trying to remember how the joke goes about somebody opened their Bible and it said Judas went out and hanged himself. And so they turn somewhere else and say, oh, they say, oh, I don't like that. So they turn somewhere else and says, go thou and do thou likewise. Oh, wait a minute, that's getting worse. And so they turn somewhere else and says, that which shall do us do quickly. You know, well, if you just piece the Bible together, that's how you end up getting the strange doctrines, which we're going to talk about in a later service, is because people will take a verse or a couple verses, lift them out of context, and then build a whole doctrine on it. That is dangerous. I also try to be careful that we don't have teaching and preaching here. And by the way, I am very thankful that we have several men here who can handle the Word of God and preach the Word of God, that when I go away, I know the Word of God is being preached properly here. That is a true blessing. Because there are those that think preaching is, you read the Scripture, then you go to preaching. And you shout and fuss and carry on and give a couple illustrations and get everybody all emotional, and then you close. But I have literally sat through messages where the Scripture's read at the beginning and then never referred to again the entire message. Anybody else ever experienced that? That is horrible preaching. That isn't even preaching. That is storytelling. Because the idea of preaching is to give you the meaning. Is that not what Ezra was doing? Give the meaning of the passage. And so I love doing book series, going through expositorily, preaching the Word of God. But as I like to do is lay down a foundation of the history and the background of the book to begin to help us understand. What I don't like is when a bunch of series end at the same time and then we're going to start new ones and it's like every message ends up becoming for a while a background message. But we can't help it. Last Sunday morning, we started 1 Timothy, and it was a background message of 1 Timothy. So today we're going to start 1 Peter, and it's going to be a background message of 1 Peter. So there may be a lot of similarities, but that's okay. It's interesting that both of these apostles, very different, their greeting or their introduction of their books have a lot of similarities. 
And, you know, we know Paul was a very educated and smart man. Uh, Peter, not that he wasn't a smart man, he just didn't have the same education Paul did. I believe he was a very smart man, because if you've ever been around fishermen, they got to be problem solvers, don't they? And pretty quick sometimes. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 1. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Now I hope you immediately see some similarities to the way Paul starts his letters. Also understand, though, these are truly that. These are letters, and just as we have standardization of how we write a letter, if it's a business letter, there's a certain way, you know, you put all the information of the business you're sending it to as if they didn't know who they are up top, and then dear sir, dear madam, or to whom it may concern, or whatever, you know, or dear if you know the name of the person with their title. Or if it's a personal letter, you forget all the address and everything else because your friends do know where they live, and so you don't have to put all that up there. You just put dear Bob, right? And then when you sign a letter, if it's a business letter, you know, you might write with regards, sincerely. Uh, if it's a request, respectfully request. Um, if it's a personal letter, you might put with love or, you know, whatever. You, but you, you, there are certain patterns, acceptable standards, if you will, in writing a letter. So there were, in Greek times, standards, if you will, in how to write a letter. So when you started a letter, as I've said many times, I think their method is much better than ours because the first thing you write is your name, so they know who's sending the letter, and then you might give a title or whatever, and then you'd say who you're writing to. Okay, so I'm writing to Bob, and then I give a salutation or a greeting, and then the case of both Peter and Paul, it happens to deal with grace and peace. So we're going to look at this passage, these three ways this morning. First, we'll see the servant Peter. Secondly, we'll examine the strangers scattered. And then lastly, the salutation given. So the servant Peter, the strangers scattered, and the salutation given. Let us ask the Lord for his guidance, please. Father, again, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this letter that you've preserved for us. Lord, not just any letter, but truthfully, part of your word and your revelation of yourself to us through the Apostle Peter. So help us to understand, Lord, that this is not just a human letter, but this is divine. And so, Lord, the words we're studying are your words. So we ask for your guidance and your help this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one who had been with Christ in one of the, if you will, inner circle with Christ. Remember when Jesus was to be transfigured, he, let, he had the twelve with him. He, he leaves all but three and takes with him Peter, James, and John and is transfigured before them. Can you imagine being there, watching some of the glory of Christ be peeled back and then seeing Moses and Elijah standing with him talking? By the way, you know what I find interesting in that passage? 
they recognized who Moses and Elijah were. Been asked many times, how are we going to know who's who in heaven? Well, let me ask you a question. How did men who never saw Moses and Elijah know it was Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus Christ? Pretty interesting, isn't it? But they knew. So we'll just figure all that out when we get to heaven. Somehow we'll know. Okay? And I don't think we'll all be wearing name tags. But we'll just know. So uh, anyhow, the point being is Peter was close to Christ, was he not? He was one who runs to the tomb. Of course, John just keeps right on running, goes in. Peter stands outside, but eventually goes in. But anyhow, we have um, the Apostle Peter. But as we go through the Gospels, we also realize Peter sometimes made rash decisions, did he not? Peter was a leader, but Peter's leadership skills needed to be honed a little bit. No, Peter's leadership skills needed to be honed a whole lot. (laughs) Because there were times when Peter would act first, ask questions later. Who's the one that chopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest? And by the way, you didn't want Peter fighting for you because I'm sure he was not aiming for the ear. (laughs) Okay, you want to talk a bad shot (laughs) or bad swing. But anyhow, Peter's the one that says, Oh Lord, although everybody else deny you, I never will. Peter's the one that we look at many times and we've heard many messages about, here goes Peter sticking his foot in his mouth again. But may I say this same man, when Jesus came walking to them on the water, is the only one who said, I'm going to get out of the boat and walk to Christ. I sometimes imagine what it was like when he got back in the boat and the other 11 looking at him saying, what was it like, Peter? Because remember, Peter took his eyes off of Christ and he started sinking. But you know, while we can make fun of Peter for that, how many of us would have actually gotten out of the boat and walked on water? Because there's 11 men watching him do so, and none of them said, hey, I think I'll go join Jesus out there. They were comfortable in the boat. He was willing to make himself uncomfortable, get out of his, what we call the comfort zone, in order to be with Christ. So while we pick on Peter a lot, how many of us are willing to get out of our comfort zone to be with Christ? You say, what do you mean? I know many are not morning people, but are you willing to get up in the morning to have that time alone with God in his word? And in prayer, let me tell you something. I know a lot of people say, well, I say my prayers before I go to bed. There's nothing wrong with that. And you should pray before you go to bed. But may I say, I want to give God the best time. And and for most of us, that is when you're fresh and awake. You say, look, I'm one of those that's a slow starter. It may take me a couple hours to get started. Okay, get your coffee going, grab your Bible, start reading, drink your coffee, have some time of prayer. But I believe you should be... And and again, it's not a sin not to, okay? But I believe the best time belongs to God. And for me, that is early morning. I'm fresh in the morning. By evening, I'm wore out. And I don't want to be one that gives God the leftovers. I want to give him the best. And I believe that was truly the desire of Peter, although Peter failed many times. But may I say, the Apostle Peter, after his denial of Christ... And Jesus comes to him and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter 
was a changed man. Now, I've shown you before in John chapter 21, the Greek words used for love in that passage. Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Using the highest form of love, agape, love. Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Phileo, the brotherly love, because you see, the arrogant Peter had been humbled. And each time Jesus asked, the first two times he says the phileo love, the third time he changes it to the, I'm sorry, the agape love. The third time Jesus changes it to the phileo love because Peter could not bring himself to say the agape love because he had failed. Now, I believe in Peter's heart, he wanted to express the agape love, but having just denied Christ, he couldn't bring himself to say it. You know what that shows me? A man who's been broken, a man who's been humbled. And does that not show when he stands on the day of Pentecost and thousands being saved as he's preaching the Word of God? Now, there are times still that Peter failed. Because did the Apostle Paul not have to stand Peter face to face because Peter was being a little bit two-faced? He was um, okay sitting and eating with the Gentiles when the Jews weren't around. But when the Jews came by, all of a sudden he had to pretend like he didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. And Paul had to call him out on it and say, you're being hypocritical, Peter. Okay, but let me ask a question. While we are quick to point out the faults of Peter, how many times have we failed God? So, what? yes, we learn from the examples of Peter, but how about we understand the weakness of our own flesh. And instead of pointing the finger at him, ha ha, look at you, Peter, you were such a failure. How about we realize, but yet God still chose to use this man. And as many times as I have failed God, why does he choose to use me? I don't know, but he does. And Peter was used greatly of God, but Peter still was, had the flesh like you and I do. Now, may I say, I imagine the Peter who's writing the book we're reading was a changed man from the fisherman when he would be out on the, on the sea, okay? Now, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but fishermen are typically very rugged. Fishermen are typically not refined. How's that? Yeah, brash, maybe. The actions you see of Peter, you would expect from that type of individual. Okay, quick thinking, quick acting. And sometimes when they would be out on the sea fishing, they had to think quick and have quick reactions in order to survive. Okay, I'm not trying to make excuses, but he kind of got this mindset of everything needs to be decided right now, not take time to think about it, right? Act first, think later. My point being is the apostle Peter grew and changed in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He became a changed man. Not a perfect man, but he definitely is more Christ-like at the end of his life than he was at the beginning. And so it ought to be for you and I. Different people are going to grow spiritually at different rates. Some have more baggage, if I can say. Now, I'm not talking, all our sin is forgiven, right? At the cross, all of us are forgiven, the same. But some have things to, if I could say, overcome of their past, like Peter did. Okay? Some people may have grown up in a Christian home and never exposed to 
alcohol and drugs and pornography and um, profanity and all these things, right? But there still needs to be change in their lives. But one who is saved from a lifestyle of drinking, smoking, cussing, running around with women, looking at pornography, all these things, has baggage, if you will, that they have to overcome and learn to grow. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit of God is going to change them, and a lot of that's going to fall off right away, but some things take time, do they not? So it is with the different apostles that they all grow at different rates too. Okay, that's what I'm trying to get at. And you and I need to be patient with others and help them grow. First Peter was written probably somewhere around A.D. 63. Now this is important because the persecution that Nero was bringing started about a year later in intensity. It, it, it already had a spattering starting. It's kind of like, you know, it, it doesn't just like turn on overnight. Okay, it's building up. But the actual real persecution uh, really started about a year later. Now, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes, The church is in Babylon, elect together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. This Babylon, some say, could have been encrypted for Rome. Peter was martyred in Rome about A.D. 68. So, again, not going to split hairs over what Babylon is actually referring to, but the place that he's saying, this church of Babylon salutes you. But what is the theme of the book? The theme, I believe, is preparing for the suffering to come. Suffering is mentioned 16 times in the book. Chapter 1, verse 11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of, God, of Christ, which was in them, did signify and testify beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory should now follow. Uh, chapter 2, verse 19, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And we can go through uh, verse 20. For what glory is it when ye are buffeted for your faults, ye should take, uh, take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. And it goes through uh, verse 21, verse 23, chapter 3, verse 14, 17, and 18. Chapter 4, verses 1, 13, 15, and 16, and 19, and then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 10. The other theme that we see here is the grace of God, chapter 5, verse 12. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. So that's a little bit about Peter. Let's talk now about these strangers scattered. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered, and then list to where they are scattered. The idea of strangers has the idea of uh, those that are dispersed or pilgrims here on earth. Now, Peter says that often and reminds us often that we're just pilgrims here on earth. We're just strangers on this earth. Don't you think that living in the Roman Empire under the oppression of Nero, being reminded, you're just strangers here on earth. You're just a pilgrim. This is just a pilgrimage. Heaven's waiting for you. Don't worry. The suffering you're going through is only temporary. Would be a great encouragement to those that are going through it. 
Chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. So these strangers, pilgrims, scattered around. Now, perhaps some of these had heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. There were many thousands there. It's very probable because it does say that they were all gathered from all, all these different places, that some of these people to whom Peter is writing had actually heard Peter preach before. But this letter is addressed to uh, Christians scattered over the five Roman provinces of modern-day Turkey. So when you read those five provinces, that's where they are, is modern-day Turkey. This would have been predominantly a Gentile audience to whom Peter is writing. That's important for us to understand. He's not going to use a lot of Jewish customs, or maybe not quote an abundance of Old Testament scriptures, because he's dealing with a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience who would be familiar with some of those things. But when we look at the scattering, you know, God is still scattering Christians today, is he not? Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you and I need to understand that God calls people to different locations to serve different people to share the gospel with them. And it amazes me when I look at couples like Matt and Katie Northcutt, who love the cold and were serving in Siberia, of all places, now serving up in Newfoundland, because they love the cold and they love that climate and the people and, and, and these cold climates, and thank God for them. And then there's ones like Lewis and Judy Young that go to a place like Papua New Guinea and serve in the heat there, and they love it. But you know, if you were to take Lewis and Judy Young and put them in Newfoundland, they'd be miserable. If you were to take Matt and Katie Northcutt and put them in Papua New Guinea, they'd be miserable. Not just because of the heat and cold, but truthfully because it's not where God has for them. But isn't it amazing how God has equipped different people and with different desires and different talents and different abilities? I mean, think about if we were all cookie cutters, life would be pretty boring, wouldn't it not? I mean, I'm glad there, there are those who their passion is to be able to do numbers and they like accounting and they like dealing with those numbers and finances and all that. Praise God for them. I'm not one of them. Thank God for those who love the sciences. I mean, I kind of like some of the modern conveniences sciences developed, don't you? Well, thank God that there's people who enjoy those things and have learned those things. And that's their passion. That's what they do. Many times, Christian colleges and some churches put a guilt trip on, especially young men, all young men should be in the ministry type attitude. Now listen, I believe every young man should ask God, do you want me to serve? It shouldn't be the last resort. It really should be the first thing. God, would you have me to be a pastor, missionary, evangelist, whatever, would you have me to serve in a full-time capacity? But you do realize it's okay if God says, no, that's not what I have for you. I want you to be a mechanic. 
right? I want you to be a scientist. I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a carpenter. I want you to be whatever the case may be. Because we need people in all those areas. And you can serve God just as much in that as you can in the full-time ministry. Which, by the way, is a misnomer because every one of us who's a born-again believer are in full-time ministry. Every one of us has the same commission given to us to share the gospel with the lost around us. Every one of us has the same responsibilities, just my extra responsibility, if you will, or different responsibility, is the preaching of the word and pastoring this flock. Okay? Yeah, so yes, I understand that that requires then full-time, as in, I'm employed, I guess you would, if you will, I hate that term, but <laughs> by the church, okay, versus somebody who goes to a secular job, but are they still not full-time supposed to be serving Christ? The answer is yes, they are. Yes, each of us are. And so these that are scattered, these believers scattered to these different areas, maybe some of them in what we would call full-time ministry, maybe many of them probably not, okay? But the point being is they were all serving Christ where God put them, and you and I need to be satisfied where God has placed us. Years ago, we had a young officer who attended here, and he struggled because in the Marine Corps, he was uh, supply. And so that didn't put him on the front lines. And he thought, I'm a Marine. My job should be out there on the front lines killing. Understand that is a mentality of most Marines. And I said, do you understand your, as a supply officer, your job, your responsibility is just as important as the guy out there pulling the trigger because if he's not getting his bullets, beans, and band-aids, he can't do his job. Well, I know that, but that's not where I need to be. I'm like, where's where God put you? No, it's where the Marine Corps put me. I said, okay, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And it's like, but did God not use the Marine Corps to put you there? You see, Christian, here's the problem. We're too busy being dissatisfied with the lot that God has given us in life, rather than saying, thank you, God, for where you, the, the talents you've given me and the area in which I have to serve. We're always looking for something bigger, better. But you know what? God had a reason why this young man was in supply and not an infantryman on the front lines. I can't answer the whys, but I, under, I know God, who's in control of all things, has his reason why he placed him there. And I spent hours with him trying to help him understand this is what God has for you to do. Don't be dissatisfied. Be happy here. He could not be happy being a supply officer because he wasn't an infantryman. It's, it's sad. And he admitted it. He knew it was wrong, but it was a real struggle for him. Folks, I come across many people who say, well, if I can't do this, if God's not going to let me do that, whatever it might be, then I'm just not going to serve him. Well, how about be happy where God has placed you? Be satisfied where God has placed you and serve him where he has placed you. I know some of your situations. It's not the optimal situation where you work, where you, you know, whatever. I mean, I understand. And by the way, it doesn't matter what occupation you have in life, there's going to be problems there. I understand some of you deal with more 
in your job than maybe some others do. But God has equipped you and placed you there for the reason, and he has a reason why he's placed you there. Serve him and be satisfied. You know, there may be one soul in your workplace that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that may be the very reason why God has you there. But if we're too busy complaining to God instead of looking for those opportunities to share the gospel with others, we might miss that opportunity that God had given us. He says in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. So here's another one of those verses that a certain group of people will take out of context and say, look, this means God chose certain people to salvation and certain people to damn to hell in his love and mercy. Which, by the way, I say that all the time that way, very facetiously, because it is the most absurd thing to say, a loving, merciful God has chosen randomly certain people to dwell with him in heaven for all eternity, and the rest he's damned to hell. But it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Understand the difference between foreknowledge and foreordination. Foreknowledge, God, by his very character, knows all things. He is omniscient. He knows all. He knows everything, past, present, and future, because remember, he created time. He's outside of time, so he knows all. So the fact that God knows something future is part of his very character, right? But knowing something doesn't mean you ordained it to happen. doesn't mean you caused it to happen that way. Okay? God knew Adam was going to sin. Did God cause Adam to sin? Well, he knows everything. Okay, we could go through his name, anything, but God knew it already. Does that mean he caused it to happen? No. So it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. It said, not elect according to the foreordination of God. God did not say, in, in, out, in, out, in, out. You good, you no good. He didn't do that. He knew that those in this room that have received Jesus Christ as their Savior were going to do so. But knowing so doesn't mean he caused it so. Okay? So, elect according to foreknowledge of God, not elect according to the foreordination of God. Two total different terms. What is then the elect? It's family doctrine to foster security among believers. I've heard it explained this way, and this is probably the best way for me to understand God's elect. Somebody explained it this way. He says, when you stand outside the gates of the kingdom, you see whosoever will. He says, when you step into the gates of the kingdom and you look back, you see the sign says God's elect. I don't know if that helps you or not, but it helped me understand the elect are those who receive Christ, who are saved. But when you're standing outside, the sign still says, if you will, whosoever will. All are invited. All are invited to be part of the elect. Those who choose to be saved, those who receive Christ as Savior, are part of the elect. Okay? I don't know if, again, I don't know if that helps you understand. But elect according to foreknowledge of God. He knows who's going to be saved. He already knows who's going to receive Christ. 
but he still makes the offer available to whosoever will may come. Whosoever will can taste of the water of life freely. It, 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 whosoever will um, shall be saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We could go over all these verses that God has said salvation is available to all. But once you enter into Christ, once you are born again believer, you are part of God's elect. You're part of God's family. You're and we could go on all these different benefits we have since you and I have been born again. Okay? Again, the election process is not this. Yes, no. Yes, no. Elect, unelect. Sorry for you. Yeah, you'll never get in. That wasn't, that's not the election process when it says elect. A Calvinist is going to tell you that's exactly what the election process means. Is God sitting there just randomly saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. No, that's not it, okay? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God and Father through sanctification of the Spirit. So, you see here the Trinity involved in salvation. You have the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the blood of Christ. But it's the sanctification of the Spirit. We have and we've seen this before, our positional sanctification places us in the body of Christ. God sees us as righteous as Christ at the moment of salvation. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And then a practical sanctification, that is us growing day by day more into the image of Jesus Christ. Helps us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not going to finish this today, so I'm going to stop right here. <clears throat> but we've seen so far the servant Peter, who, yes, may have made many mistakes during his life, but truly had a desire to serve God at a time in his life, became a broken, humbled man. And from that time on, I believe, was greatly used of God. Have we humbled ourselves before God so he can use us? And then as we've seen the stranger scattered, have we been reminded that we are just pilgrims here on this earth, scattered, given different places, different occupations, to serve God? Because, folks, you come in contact with people I may never know, may never see. You have opportunities to share the gospel with folks I never will have the opportunity to. And some of that is by just the fact of where God has placed you. And so let us realize God is in control. Let us close with a word of prayer.